2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 through 20 is our text. 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 through 20, we'll begin our reading uh, here at verse 1, chapter 7. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Then Elisha said, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and a measure of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, behold, you will see it with your own eyes but you will not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we will die also. Now therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Aramaeans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Aramaeans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Aramaeans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even a sound of a great army, So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp just as it was, and fled for their life. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. And they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied, and the donkeys tied, and the tents, just as they were. The gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. And the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will, I will now tell you what the Aramaeans have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, Please, let some of the men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, they will be in any case like the multitude of Israel who have already perished 
So let us send and see. They took therefore two chariots with horses, and the king sent after the army of the Aramaeans, saying, Go and see. They went after them in the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Aramaeans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Aramaeans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two, shekels of, two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if heaven should make windows, in he- or if the Lord rather should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. The reading of Holy Scripture, be seated, and let's pray together. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens and your glory over all the earth. In the preaching and hearing of your word, as your spirit attends it, even as you have promised, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The theme of 2 Kings 6, 24 through chapter 7 and verse 20 is that Jehovah shows grace to his desperate people by granting them deliverance. The Aramean siege of Samaria had reduced the citizens to desperation, 2 Kings 6, 24 and 25 to paying exorbitant prices for donkey heads and dove's dung. And worse, the cannibalism to which one woman had resorted, here in chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. The king of Israel, unnamed, but probably Jehoram, the last king mentioned, and the next king mentioned here in uh, the king's Narrative is desperate, he's horrified and helpless to help this woman who cries out to him for justice as he passes by in the city wall because another Israelite woman who helped her eat her son didn't in turn share her own son for the next meal 
as she had agreed to do, but instead selfishly hid him. The divine judgment that hangs over this account adds to the picture of human desperation in the city of Samaria, in the covenant curses revealed in Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 to 53, the Lord had graphically threatened with just this disaster if she should continue in her infidelity. Nations would besiege her cities, and they would eat their own offspring, the flesh of their sons and daughters. Into the midst of this desperate situation, Jehovah injects his sure word of promise. We begin our consideration of the first of two, four sections in this passage. Last Lord's Day, we saw in the first place the desperate need for deliverance in chapter 6, verses 24 to 33, and then the astounding promise of deliverance in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. This evening we're considering the other two sections in uh, this passage in 2 Kings 6, 24 to 7, verse 20. In the first place, we'll consider the unlikely instruments of deliverance in chapter 7, verses 3 to 15. And then secondly, the double-edged sword of deliverance in Verses 16 to 20 here in chapter 7. So first then, the unlikely instruments of deliverance. The scene shifts, uh, shifts rather uh, abruptly here in, in chapter 7 and, and verse 3 to four lepers at the city gate of Samaria. And at first glance, it makes us wonder what these lepers have to do with this count at all, the, uh, the account at all here, here in, uh, in 2 Kings. Faced with certain death, if they go into the city or if they stay where they are, verse 4, these four lepers instead choose possible death in the camp of the, Amer- the Aramaeans saying, if they spare us, we live. If they kill us, well, we're no worse than we are now. So they arise at twilight to go to the Aramean camp, and upon reaching the outskirts, they find it abandoned, verses 5 and 6. The structural center of the text that we're dealing with tonight is found in the explanation of verses 6 and 7, which expresses the primary theology of the account. Why did the Aramaeans flee their camp so abruptly? Why did the lepers find it empty? Because of divine intervention. The text is emphatic here in verse 6, for Jehovah had caused the army of the Aramaeans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses even the sound of a great army. They were supernaturally tricked into 
thinking that Israel's king had hired a mercenary army from the Hittites and the Egyptians. So they rushed out of their camp, abandoning their possessions, leaving them where they lie. Verse 7. This is the Lord's doing. And the narrator skillfully places Jehovah's role at the center of the account. The timing of the events uh, point to divine intervention as well. The lepers arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Aramaeans. Verse 5, and the Aramaeans arose and fled in the twilight. Verse 7, same Hebrew terms being used here. Just as the lepers are setting out for the camp, the army is fleeing from the camp in a panic. Jehovah is in the midst of this desperate situation, and he is at work. The lepers' plundering of the the camp in in verse 8 is is brief, but it's quite vivid. They enter into one tent on the outskirts of the camp. They eat and drink their fill. They gather up all the silver and gold and clothing they can carry, and they go away to hide them. And then it's on to the next tent as they return and move deeper into the camp. But after a long day of plundering, by the time they return to uh, the city of Samaria, it's nighttime. They've been engaged all this time before they went back to Samaria in their plundering. After a long day of of taking what what they will in the tents of the Aramaeans, their their conscience kicked in and and they become uh, uneasy about what they were doing. We're we're not doing right, verse 9. This is a day of good news, but we're keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let us come. Let us go and and tell the king. Off they go to tell the gatekeepers of the city. Verse 10. And they tell them what, what, what happened when they came to the Aramean camp. When came to the camp of the Aramaeans, behold, there, there was no one there, nor the voice of a man, only horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. The, instrument of deli- the instruments of deliverance are unclean lepers of all People. They aren't alone, however. A nameless servant also plays a crucial role, verses 12 to 15. The king's servants judge that the military intel that these lepers bring warrants getting him out of bed. He arose in the night and he does some telling. Verse 12, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. The king isn't naive. He knows what's happening. He has it all figured out. Camp is deserted because 
The, the Arameans know the, the desperation of the inhabitants of the city of Samaria. Uh, they're hiding outside of, of the camp. They're waiting for us to, to go out of the city so they can capture us and gain entrance into the city. Only a fool would fall into their trap. The nameless servant, verse 13, has the audacity to speak in the king's presence, suggesting that, that they at least ought to go check it out. His logic is akin to the lepers. What do we stand to lose except the lives of those in the reconnaissance party who will be like the masses of Israel who've already perished or will if we do nothing? And off they go in chariots with horses, verse 14. The airmans are gone. And they tell the king. There's a whole lot of telling going on in this passage. This is the way Jehovah operates. He uses people. He uses means. And among the means that he uses are people to carry out his purposes. But what people? Not the most qualified, the most healthy, or prominent, but unclean lepers and a nameless servant. God chose lepers to discover the Aramean's camp just as he chose women to first discover the great miracle of Christ's resurrection. Even though the testimony of women wasn't acceptable in first century courtrooms. Why? So that the gospel writers would not be accused of fabricating their accounts of the resurrection. Who in their right minds would record the account of these women in defense of Christ's resurrection in an age when a woman's testimony wasn't legally accepted unless they wanted to convince their readers that they weren't making it up. God uses unlikely servants to tell of his glory. And church history tells the same story. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was undoubtedly one of the greatest preachers the church has ever known. His gifts were evident from boyhood. And he quickly rose to prominence in London, being dubbed the Prince of Preachers. But Spurgeon, like many preachers, was susceptible to self-criticism and melancholy what we call depression. And there came a time when he doubted that God was using his gifts effectively, so he left the pulpit for six months and traveled abroad in Europe. One of his biographers recounts what, uh, recounts what brought him back to the pulpit. One Sabbath day toward the end of his six-month hiatus, he attended a small Calvinistic Methodist church in the country. After the service, uh, the congregation filed out. 
stopping to shake the minister's hand as he left the church, and as, as they shook hands, Spurgeon introduced himself to the Methodist minister of that congregation, who turned red in the face and said to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Why, sir, that was your sermon I just preached. And Spurgeon replied, saying, Yes, I know. And God has used it to help me understand that he can again use me in the pulpit. And off he went back to London to resume preaching in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. God used this unknown minister, unnamed by his biographer, to deliver the prince of preachers from depression, to convince him to return to ministry, the unlikely instruments of deliverance. Secondly, we see in our text, verses 16 to 20, the double-edged sword of deliverance. Verses 16 to 20 drive home the veracity, the reliability, the exactness, the certain fulfillment of Jehovah's word. The people went out from Samaria to plunder the Aramean camp, finishing what the lepers had started, and twice were told that Jehovah's astounding province, uh, promise rather, of deliverance in chapter 7 and verse 1 was fulfilled. Verse 16, a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of Jehovah. In the Hebrew Bible, this expression, according to the word of Jehovah, occurs 26 times. 17 of them are in First and Second Kings, and about half of them in the Elijah and Elisha narratives. One of the great emphases of these narratives. Verse 18 repeats this important truth for emphasis. The new prices came about just as the man of God had spoken to the king. Jehovah's astounding word of promise, a word that contradicted all appearances and stood opposed to the most likely human projections, was proved true. God's people were delivered because Jehovah had spoken it. But Jehovah's word is a two-edged sword. It delivers and it destroys. It saves and it condemns. And the sword's edge of judgment is just as certain as its edge of deliverance. So we read in verse 17 that the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him at the gate. And he died just as the man of God had said. 
this skeptical officer, ironically stationed at the very gate he had, uh, at which he had scoffed at Jehovah's promise through Elijah, was trampled when the famished people scrambled to buy food. Jehovah's word cuts both ways. Instead of deliverance, it brought to God's covenant people, it brought death because of this man's own unbelief. He didn't nullify God's word by his unbelief, but he forfeited his own benefit from that word according to Jehovah's word spoken through Elisha. The royal officer, verse 19, had heard Jehovah's word and promise, and he answered the man of God, chapter 7 and verse 2, repeated here again at the end of our text as well. Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? Elijah responded with God's word of judgment. Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And just as the narrator repeats the fulfillment of the promise in verses 16 and 18, so he repeats the fulfillment of judgment in first in verse 17 and then again in verse 20. So it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate and he died in order to underscore the veracity, the truthfulness, the certain fulfillment of Jehovah's word. Now, what effect should this account have on us as the people of God in our day? This account should drive us to Hebrews 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. How perilous the Word of God is. How precarious for us to think that God can't possibly be all that upset over a certain degree of unbelief. God's sure word of promised deliverance had become a word of judgment for this hard-hearted, promise-rejecting man. Unbelief is always dangerous, no matter what form it takes. But it's never more dangerous than when it manifests itself in the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For when that happens, the message of grace in the gospel, will in the end turn to eternal judgment to all who reject it. We have in the gospel of Jesus Christ a message that makes Elisha's message of grace pale in comparison. The gospel comes to us in our spiritual poverty, And it tells us that God has 
provided spiritual abundance for all who believe. It tells us that God has, as it were, made windows in heaven through which the redeeming work of his son, Jesus Christ, he now pours out of those windows a forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, the hope of eternal glory, and every spiritual blessing comes to those who believe this gospel promise. God used unclean lepers and an unnamed servant to tell of the deliverance that awaited Israel. And if God is pleased to use such unlikely servants to bear the message of deliverance, then my obscure status doesn't prevent me from telling others the good news of deliverance from sin, judgment, and condemnation. My mundane circumstances are no hindrance to being used as the Lord's messenger. And that means my daily calling, whatever it is, isn't useless. And we can go and tell of a greater deliverance than that of Samaria. The writer to the Hebrews earlier in that letter warns you not to neglect so great a salvation that God had appointed his angels to tell. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Nor ought you, and nor ought I, neglect our responsibility to tell others of such a great salvation that God has poured out of the windows of heaven to everyone who believes his promise of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great and glorious God in heaven, we are your humble servants. We are not a people of great renown. We are unlikely servants, unlikely to be those who are used to tell of your message of great deliverance. Far be it from us, O Lord, that we should neglect so great a salvation as you have brought about in our own experience. And far be it from us that we would neglect our responsibility to tell others of such a great salvation, given that this is a far greater deliverance than that of Samaria. O Lord, hear us as we pray to you now. And grant that we might be those who believe your promises. Grant, O Lord, that we would be those who receive those promises, who latch on to those promises, who plead those promises before your throne, who never reject the word that you have spoken, the great word of salvation that you have spoken, the great promises that you've given us. And, O Lord, use us as unlikely messengers we may be. Overcome our hesitance. Overcome our timidity. And grant that we would be 
willing messengers to our neighbors and to our friends and to our co-workers and to our family members. Take away the hesitance, O Lord, brought about because we're afraid of rejection from those who hear the gospel message. Take away the fear of ridicule, of being thought to be foolish by others, for you have made uh, your word, the gospel, a great wisdom, O Lord, a great message to be delivered to everyone who will hear it. Give ear to our prayer now, we pray, O God, for we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.